um, was looking at the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians and, and how God has called the Gentiles or the people that weren't Jews into the church of God and, and has made a way for salvation for all of us. Um, a few Sunday nights ago, um, I gave the second part, which was the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. And that also continued on in the same vein of just how awesome God has been in allowing a way for people that weren't Jews, people that weren't God's original chosen people to be able to be saved. And so this morning, um, continuing on in that vein, we'll be looking um, at uh, Ephesians again, which I have very, very um, cannily titled A Study of Ephesians Part 3. So we're going to be looking at um, actually the first half of of the uh, of the fourth chapter of Ephesians seems to be going in halves. First two chapters, then one, then half a chapter. Um, but it's the way that the the Lord is uh, has revealed things to me. So before we go and start looking at the fourth chapter of Ephesians, just an introduction to the book of Ephesians for those who may not have been here. Um, for any of the others. This epistle was written by Paul to the Gentile churches uh, in Ephesus and in the surrounding regions, and not just to Ephesus, but to all of the Gentile churches at the same time. What we need to know when we look at the, the book of Ephesians and, well, many of the other epistles of Paul is that there were two classes uh, back in those days, at least from the perspective of the Jews, the people of God. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Anyone who wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. And the Gentiles didn't have a way of salvation until the time of the church. There was no clear plan to be saved. They had to become a Jew. But now God has brought together both into one. Both Jews, both non-Jews, and we're all part of the one church. There is one way of salvation for all who would come to Jesus. And that is something that is awesome. And that is what pretty much the entire first three chapters of Ephesians goes over in a lot of detail, saying, you know, we're, we're all one. We're all one body. And we are going to... Um, and we have the same access to God. We're, we're not Jews and Gentiles anymore, but we're one church. And God has made... And just how incredible that is, that God made this way of salvation for these... Uh, these people that didn't know God, these people that had no interest in God and wanted to serve their own gods, but God made a way for all to be saved. Another thing we need to know is that Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee who was the, the greatest possible... Uh, well, the Pharisees were, were the greatest spiritual leaders of that time. And um, we know from the teachings of Jesus just how much they got it wrong. Um, but they, they were the best that was at offer um, in the time of when Jesus was walking on this earth. Um, Paul had been taught perfectly in all the laws and the commandments of God and of the Pharisees. He knew everything there was to know about the law. He grew up under one of the greatest teachers of the law of the time, uh, Gamaliel. And he knew everything there was to know about the Word of God. But God... Um, 
got a hold of him. He persecuted the church, but God got a hold of him and he sent him to the Gentiles, to these people who didn't know God. And so that's part of the reason why there are so many epistles because the Gentiles needed to know, needed to understand what it was to walk with God and what they needed to do to walk with God. So the book of Ephesians is split into two parts. The first three chapters, which we've done in previous, uh, in the two previous parts, talk about how God has made a way for the Gentiles to be saved along with the Jews and how awesome and incredible that is. The last three chapters contain instruction and warning against the things of the world which come naturally to the Gentiles and the things of God which don't come naturally to the Gentiles. This epistle was written directly to the Gentile churches. So it contains instructions on things that mostly pertain to the Gentiles and the way that the Gentiles think and have been brought up. We see evidence of every single issue that is discussed in these last three chapters in people around us today who don't follow God, who follow their own carnality, their own way of thinking. And that is the natural state of those that don't know God. The Jews had the law of God already from generation to generation to generation. So they had a good idea of what was acceptable to God and what wasn't. Transferring those concepts for a Jew into the church, when a Jew was saved and came into the church, that was easy because they already had a good understanding of what was required of someone who followed God. They've been taught the law from a child. They've been taught the precepts and the commandments of God. And so coming into the church wasn't a difficult thing for a Jew. But the Gentiles had to be taught from scratch. That's why Paul spent a lot of time and detail into instructing these Gentiles in the ways of God. They needed it. It didn't come naturally. They hadn't been taught from a child to uh, follow the way of God. So we'll start at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. We'll be reading the, the entire half of, first half of Ephesians chapter 4. And as we go through this study this morning. So Ephesians chapter 4 and starting from verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. See, Paul was a prisoner at that time with great restrictions and hardships in his life and he was still walking faithfully for Jesus. So he was, he was entitled to feel bold in exhorting the Gentile saints to live for Jesus the right way without compromise. He had it more difficult than the Gentiles did. Paul wasn't interested in having the Gentile church be Christians in name only with nothing else to show for it. They needed to walk with God in a way that was worthy of being a Christian. No cutting corners and no, no Sunday saints and then do what you like the rest of the week. God was only interested in having followers, in, in having saints that followed him in a way that's worthy of being a saint. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And these are the things that the Gentiles, these four things are the things that the Gentiles needed to have and we need to have and display in our lives to walk worthy of that vocation, of 
that calling that we have to follow and to serve God. We all need lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing. The first one, lowliness or humility, was despised by the Gentiles of the time because they considered it a sign of weakness. And it's not much different today either. People who are humble, people just despise, people just don't think anything of them. It's considered a sign of weakness. The Greek, and in the Greek way of thinking, they viewed humility as a quality best suited to a slave or to a prisoner. They were the ones who they expected to be humble, to to be bowing down, to... Um, to serve others. But to a Christian, true humility is total dependence on God, where we could actually be called the slave or the prisoner of God. Jesus introduced true humility to the world and set the standard by which to measure all humility. We should seek and, and, and bring ourselves into the measure of Jesus' humility. That is our our measuring stick of Jesus and his humility. The second one, meekness or gentleness or self-control. This has a meaning along the lines of an animal that has been tamed and properly trained, obedient to its master's every command. When we walk in the spirit in obedience to Jesus, our sinful nature is tamed and we can walk worthy of him in all obedience and following him the way that he wants us to be. The third one, long-suffering, or both persistence and patience. We need to have the ability to endure and the patience to wait. To endure the hardships of trial and testing until God brings deliverance, and also to be patient in our relationships with others, overlooking their faults and their shortcomings. The last one, number four, forbearing one another in love. So not only do we need to be patient with others, we also need to forbear or hold back from saying or doing anything that would hurt or harm anyone else in the church. The love here that it talks about, forbearing one another in love, is the Greek word agape, which means unconquerable love, always giving and never expecting a return. That's the sort of love God expects, God calls us to have for the others in the church. Always giving, never expecting a return. There's a, well, it's more than a philosophy, but there's an expectation in the world today of feed me, of especially in the the younger children. They, They have expectations that they're going to have everything delivered to them on a plate, but God hasn't called us to always say, give, give, give. God has called us to love. God has called us to give and never expect anything back. Not to give and then expect them to to reciprocate to us, but that's the sort of love that God has called us to, to give and never expect anything in return, but to give because, because we love one another. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is interesting that the unity is referred to as the unity of the Spirit. You see, perfectly, perfect unity can only be established by God. 
Perfect unity can only be obtained and maintained in a church if all the saints are walking in the Spirit themselves. If the saints, aren't, uh, if the saints are walking in the Spirit, they'll be showing the fruit of lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing from the verse before. Without these four things in believers' lives, there will be fighting and bickering, people deliberately hurting others, disharmony and disunity. That's the natural state of people when you get lots of different people into one place. That's, that's the natural state. You find that everywhere. In any normal gathering of people or organization or association or workplace, there are usually troubles and disharmony as people rub each other the wrong way. But the church should be different. As Jesus said in John chapter 13, 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. You see, those who follow Jesus are able to stun all expectations of the world by showing that everybody in the church cannot just get along and tolerate each other, but actually love each other. That is a witness that is incredible and, and great to anyone from outside who walks in the doors of the church. It should be a witness that is in this church, and I believe that it is. That's something that only God can do. And is a powerful witness to those that don't believe in God. That this is some, there's something more than something natural in the house of God. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So what? after just talking about unity or oneness in the church, Paul then talks about seven unities or one that must be present in God's church. The first one, one body. There must be no divisions in the church. All people, races, nationalities, social groups, levels of wealth, whatever differences you could think of that could be used to split people apart into groups, into divisions, subdivisions, they're all the same in God's sight. God showed that by bringing the Gentiles into the church with the same status as the Jews already in the church. There's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. The first three chapters of Ephesians have gone into great detail into talking about how there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile in the church of God. There was a massive chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles back then. So every other possible division that we could think of just pales into insignificance and has no place in the church. If God can bring the Jews and the Gentiles together into one with the same status as everybody else, then there's no other division that's greater than that. And so it doesn't belong in the church either. Number two, one spirit. God doesn't give different people a different type of Holy Ghost. For everybody, it means that Jesus is living inside of them and guiding and leading them into all truth. So the Holy Ghost is leading the church all in one direction, toward Him and His perfect ways. If somebody is pushing a different way to, every, to everybody else in the church, 
they're not walking in the spirit. And it's evident by the direction that they are going that they're not walking in the spirit. Number three, one hope of your calling. God hasn't given different promises and futures to different groups of people in the church. People aren't earmarked for hell or an imaginary purgatory where, where you, you uh, have to pay for your sins or, or, or whatever status or, or walk of life you have before you can enter into heaven. But all are called to look for the soon return of Jesus Christ and eternal life with God. That is our hope. That is all our hope. We have one hope today for Jesus to come back and going and living with him forever and ever and ever. Number four, one Lord. The Greek word kurios, which was translated here as the word Lord, was also used for the Roman emperor in the sense that he was the master of all things in those times. If the emperor said jump, you jumped. If the emperor said that person dies, that person died. The emperor had all power over everything of that time. Whatever he wanted, he could bring to pass simply by his power and his authority that he had. The church, the body of Christ, only has one master of all things, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the head of the body, as Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 clearly states, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that's Jesus, that in all things he might have the preeminence. There is only one Lord, one master. See, in the natural world, the head tells the body what to do. And the body does what the head tells it to do in our normal natural bodies. And it must be the same in the church as well. You see, a body that doesn't follow every instruction that the head gives it is considered to be sick. There's something wrong if you're, you, you tell your body to do something and it doesn't do it. There's something extremely wrong and it needs to be fixed. So you go to a doctor, you go to a hospital, and there is a problem that needs to be rectified. And it's the same way in the church as well. If a church doesn't follow the directions of Jesus, it's unnatural and sick and needs immediate attention. There is only one Lord over, uh, uh, over the church. Number five, one, faith. There is only one set of beliefs that God has set out, and that is what is found in the full context of the Bible. There is no room for man's ideas or supposed extra instructions from God or from angels. Everything we need to follow to be saved and walk in holiness is found in the Bible we have in front of us today. There is no room for our own interpretation of the Bible either. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Prophecy can mean both foretelling God's instructions and also foretelling the future. Even if you take this Scripture from the point of view only of foretelling the future, there is nothing that is more open to interpretation than a future prophecy. We can see that with the book of Revelation today. How many different ideas have come out of people's interpretations and trying to shoehorn the events in the book to match people's own opinions and what they think that it means or that it should mean? 
If even prophecy in the Bible is not to be interpreted incorrectly, how much less are the clear instructions of God not to be interpreted according to man's own opinions and ideas? We must follow the instructions of God exactly as he meant them, not what we think or want to believe that God actually meant. That means that it is vitally important to interpret each scripture not in isolation, but in context with all the other scriptures around it and all the other books in the Bible. You see, the Bible itself is also in unity with itself. Oneness. It presents a clear and single direction to the church without contradiction when you study the Bible in its full context. After all, you would expect nothing less when the author is God himself. Have a think about that. Number six, one baptism. It's not acceptable to be baptized in different ways or under different names. Jesus has set out the form of baptism, and it must always be by full immersion in the name of Jesus. Anything else is not recognized by God as being truly baptized. It's vitally important that we follow the full plan of salvation as set out in the Word of God. Number seven, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is what underpins everything in the church and in the Word of God. There is only one God. The Jews knew it. In fact, they were commanded by God to teach this from generation to generation to generation. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. God is trying to tell them just how vitally important this truth is. There is only one God. There's no, there should be no... Um, Doubt there should be nothing that, that would, would cause anyone to think that there is any different. And if you go down a few verses in verse 14, Deuteronomy 6, verse 14, you shall not go after the gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For Lord, the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. It was that important. God wanted his children to know exactly who he was. So the Jews didn't have a problem in this area. They knew and still know that there is only one God. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, had no concept of who God is or even that there was only one God. Most of the religions in the world outside of Judaism and Christianity believe in multiple gods because they haven't been taught any different. As an extreme example, there are 33 million gods in Hinduism, the religion that was founded in India. I don't know how someone actually manages to pray to all of them during their lifetime, but I suppose it's possible there'd be enough, enough time to do it. The other religions in the world vary in number of the gods that they worship. In the time of the New Testament, the Greeks worshipped between 12 and 20 different major gods. 
And the Romans worshipped 12 main gods, made up of six gods and six goddesses. So this was the, the, the setting. This was the, the, the place where the church found themselves in at this time. And these Ephesians um, were no different. As Ephesus was located in present-day Turkey, which is very close to Greek, Greece and would have been subject to Greek culture, it is only natural that the Gentiles in this area and beyond and in the surrounding areas originally believed in many gods. It was accepted. It was believed. It, there, were, there were temples to, um, in, in Ephesus, there was a temple to, to the goddess Diana, um, for example. But it was natural for them to believe in many gods. So this fact that there's one God, one Father, was a, was a strange and a new concept to them. It's no wonder that Paul felt the need to reinforce the fact that there is only one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul was reinforcing that this God we serve is above everything, including all the gods that we used to worship. And there's no need to worship anybody or anything else because he made everything and everybody, and therefore he is the Father of us all. Verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Paul realized that it wasn't natural or easy for the Gentiles to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they were called, as it talks about in verse 1 of chapter 4. So now he focuses on the provisions that Jesus has made to his church. Yes, it's not easy or natural, but we've been given grace. And not just ordinary grace, but grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. What was the gift of Christ to the church? His death, his burial, and his resurrection, which has given us the gift of complete forgiveness for sin and freedom to overcome sin in our own flesh and our own desires. That is the gift of Christ. The measure of the gift of Christ is limitless. He sacrificed everything to make a way of salvation. So we have more than enough grace to take us through this walk and beyond. That is the measure of the gift that Jesus has given us. Verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. We, we sang about it this morning, Jesus' victory. We talked about him having the victor's crown. Jesus' victory over the grave means that his followers are free from the bondage and the power of sin. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just deliver us. He also gave gifts to the church, to the people of God that would help people to both find salvation and also to stay saved. The gave gifts unto men here is related to but different to the gift of Christ in the preceding verse. We know this because a few verses down in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we'll get there soon, Paul lists the gifts that are given unto men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And not everybody is called to one of these offices. Sometimes calls, Jesus calls people just to be saints in the church and follow and walk with him faithfully. If the gift of Christ was the same thing as the gifts given unto men, then those people not called to one of those ministries wouldn't receive grace at all because there's no gift of Christ given to them. 
And we know that that isn't true. Jesus has offered grace to all mankind through his ultimate sacrifice. The relationship between the two gifts is that first Jesus gave the ultimate gift of his sacrifice for salvation for all. Then he gave gifts unto men both for the purpose of salvation and also to keep people saved. So one is the act of bringing that possibility, that, that ability to be saved, and the other is to actually get people saved and to keep people saved. Those are the gifts that Jesus has brought to us. Verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul doesn't just want to focus on Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. But he wants the Gentiles to realize the awesomeness of God's entire plan for redemption. Descending first into the lower parts of the earth talks about the incarnation of Jesus. The end of Jesus' life on this earth only has full meaning when you realize the incredible plan of God that caused the start of Jesus' life on this earth in the first place. That God would somehow fuse himself into a human frame so that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. That is an incredible concept that God would care for us that much. All for the purpose of redeeming you and me from sin and certain death. By bringing that full, incredible plan fully into focus, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ has a greater impact and a greater meaning to us. And that is why Paul reminds the Ephesian church of this in these verses. Verse 11. We're going into the gifts now. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. As mentioned before, these are the gifts. These five gifts are the gifts that Jesus gave to men. Apostles. They take the gospel to previously unreached places and establish churches. Prophets, they either foretell the future or foretell God's purpose for his church to give direction, warning, and or edification to the saints of God. Evangelists, they have the ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with individuals that need salvation in a powerful way. We're all called to be soul winners, but we're not all called to be evangelists. It's a special calling and a gift of God to the church. Pastors, they are shepherds that care for the flock of God, the church, on a daily basis. It's not just once and then just come and, and they go somewhere else, but they stay. They teach, they instruct, they guide, they lift up on a daily basis. They're there whenever you need them to help you. And teachers, they have a God-given special ability to be able to explain the Word of God in a simple and in an understandable way. In both Greek and English, pastors and teachers are linked closely together, meaning that the same individuals commonly fill both of these roles, but they're not the same role. I believe that all pastors are called to be teachers to a certain extent, and, but not all teachers are called to be pastors. And for what purpose has Jesus given these gifts? Verse 12 goes on. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, 
for the edifying of the body of Christ. So it's for the purposes of enabling the saints to fulfill their ministries and their callings. It's for the salvation of new souls. And it's for correcting and uplifting the church or keeping people saved. Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When we first come to Jesus, we all have our own ideas and thoughts about what the Word of God means. But God has given us these five gifts to continually reveal the depths of His Word to us and to bring us united in in the understanding and the knowledge of the Word of God and as to who Jesus really is. God has given us these gifts to instruct, to bring us all together into that unity of knowing the truth and the full truth of God and his word. The only man who is ever perfect is Jesus Christ. So he is the measure of the maturity of our walk with God. The more we're like Jesus, the closer we are to, to being a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He is our measuring stick. He is the one that we strive to be like. We are continually working and striving to become more like Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord works on us. He ministers to us. He encourages us. He uplifts us. He helps us to become more like him. And it's just from glory to glory. He keeps leading us closer. He keeps leading us to be more like him. Verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 4. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. False doctrine here is likened to a fierce storm that rocks the boat of the church and endangers everyone's life. However, the fivefold ministry protects us from false doctrine when we submit to their ministries. God will warn and protect his people by his ministers speaking the truth in love, in a kind and in a gentle way to lead us out from false doctrine that would try to destroy and, and, and kill our walks with God. Verse 16, from whom, talking about Christ, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The church is the body of Christ. But notice that it talks about every joint supplying, every part working effectually to build up, to increase, to join together, to edify the body. We all have a part to play. None of us are useless or have no function to play in the church. Don't let Satan try to tell you that. Don't think that within yourself. Don't allow low self-esteem to, to make you think that you're nothing or you're worthless. But we all have a part to play 
in the church. When we look at our bodies, none of, none of our, our, any, any part of within our body is useless. It all works together. It all keeps the blood flowing. It all, all keeps things moving. It allows us to, to move around. It allows us to hold things. It allows us to create things. Everything that we have within us all works together to make us a, a, a perfect being. And so when we, when we all work together within the church, we're all different parts. No one's exactly the same here in the church. We all have different roles to play. We all have different people that we interact with. We all have different things that we can do to encourage and to build and to lift up the people of the church of God. So none of us are useless or have no function to play. But the body of Christ relies on everyone to do their part, to build up others, to encourage others. Just by being here in the church, every time the doors are open, you encourage other people. Just by being here, you encourage other people. And that's without talking to people and and uplifting them with your words. That is something that is so simple to do, but we don't realize the effect that we have on others just by being here. The world can try to pull us away. Satan can try to pull us away. We can try to withdraw ourselves because of our own feelings about who and what we are or our mistakes of the past or present. But when we're attached to the body, when we're a part of the church, we all uplift and we all strengthen each other. We work together into that one purpose, that one calling that God has called us to. We're all called for that same hope. We're all called for that same purpose, to work together as Jesus instructs and commands. We all encourage each other to keep going. We're all in this together. If you would stand, please. The church is not just one person. The church is not just a few people. The church is not just the people who have have specific uh, roles in the church, like men's ministry leader or the pastor or the assistant pastor or the ministry in the church. Then they don't make up the church. The church is everybody. The church is the saint that is trying to walk for Jesus. And when we come to church, when we encourage others to walk with God, we're helping the church. We're strengthening, we're uplifting, and we're allowing God to do his perfect work in our lives.